In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Matt Wynn about how to build the right thing with behavior-driven development, how he and his team use Cucumber differently than you might use Cucumber, and the distinction between acceptance tests and system tests. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 51. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm Adam, and today it's my pleasure to be uh, speaking with Matt Wynn. How's it going, Matt? Very well, thank you, Adam. Nice to be here. So, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just uh, introducing yourself and kind of telling the audience a bit about uh, who you are and what you do? I'm a computer programmer by trade. Um, I've been working in that job since the late 90s. And I always found myself frustrated with the way that the non-technical people that we were writing the code for and the technical people who were writing the code got along. Um, They didn't seem to communicate very well. And I often found myself being the kind of go-between because I could write code and I could speak to other programmers about code. But I also seemed to be maybe better than average on a programming team, able to speak to the non-tech people about what they actually wanted us to make the code do and it just seems to me that uh, we waste a lot of time when those two groups don't understand each other and programmers go off and write the wrong code there's a there's a lot of waste going on there and kind of unhappiness that comes from that uh, so it's always been a frustration of mine and something that I've wanted to try and tackle uh, so I discovered agile and that was good and it helps quite a lot um, but uh, the thing that really kind of got my uh, passion alighted was when I saw Dan North do a talk in about 2005 about BDD. Or he, he the talk was called "Awesome Acceptance Testing," and one thing led to another, and I got involved in the project that was just kind of starting around that time, which became called Cucumber. In, initially, just as a user, in fact, I couldn't even really write any Ruby that the thing was written in, but I became better at Ruby, became part of the community, ended up writing a book about the project. And now we actually have a company, um, which is me and uh, a handful of other people who, uh, Aslak who started the project and and a handful of other people. Um, And we uh, just about make a living um, from giving advice to companies that are trying to use Cucumber and and more uh, more often apply BDD and help them to, to do that and make a success of it. And we sort of recycle the profit from that into, you know, more work on the open source. Awesome. Yeah, I think um, BDD is one of those things that I think a lot of people have a hard time kind of wrapping their head around exactly what it is. And I think I'm starting to get a handle on like what it's meant to mean. But I'd love to hear you kind of talk a bit more about, you know, what BDD means to you and how you explain it to people who aren't familiar with the topic. Yeah, it depends how unfamiliar they are, right? Because what do they already know about? So somebody who already knows about TDD, for example, I can explain to them that, well, it's it's like TDD. You, pro- you probably just do TDD on like unit tests, on small classes and methods, maybe some integration unit tests. That's great. But how do you know which tests you need to write? How do you communicate with your stakeholders about what the software is supposed to do before you sit down and start doing your TDD? And that's where BDD fits in really, is helping you to use examples to drive out a shared understanding with your non-technical people about what 
would be acceptable to them when you're done. And those are what actually for a long time, even in the TDD world way back have been called acceptance tests. And so defining some acceptance tests in the form of examples that you can use to steer you right the way through a, you know, the delivery of a, of a user story. And that's really where BDD, I think just, if you, I, I like to think of it as just a re-explanation re of TDD. Like actually, if you go back and read Kent Beck's book, all of this stuff is in there about trying to understand stakeholders, trying to sit down and write a customer test first before you go and write unit tests. Um, but people somehow along the way miss that that stuff, and we're re-emphasizing um, the communication with with stakeholders and starting from that point. And I think the the new stuff that's there really that's just come out of the maturity of the tooling. So comparison to say something like fitness from from back at that time. Um, Cucumber allows you to keep those documented examples in version control with the code, um, but also publish them in ways that make it easy for non-technical people to access it. So you do start to move towards this idea where you have really living documentation that describes the way the software is supposed to behave and is verified and up to date all the time. Yeah. So would you say that BDD is like not really a technical practice then? Or is it a little bit of both? Or how do you kind of think about it on that spectrum versus something like TDD that I think people see more as, you know, a programmer activity, I guess? Yeah, and, and I think that's the mistake that we've made, right? That Because TDD done by the book, if you read Kent's book, isn't isn't just a programmer practice. It's a, it's a practice that pulls non-programmers into the programming world and helps programmers figure out what they should be doing. But um, we missed that. So yeah, BDD is a, is a whole team practice. It's a practice that brings together technical and non-technical people. And there's that thing in the Agile Manifesto, isn't there? Uh, um, what's it called? Something over processes and tools. Uh, people and uh, interactions individuals. or something, yeah. Right, people and interactions, individuals and interactions over processes and tools. So a kind of soundbite way of thinking about this is that I think of Cucumber, used right, or BDD as a tool that helps individuals to have better interactions, right? Because that's all it is. It is just a tool at the end of the day. And um, if you find a better tool that helps your individuals to have better interactions, you should definitely throw it out and use that tool instead. You should definitely throw Cucumber and BDD out and use this other thing instead. I would love to hear about that tool. But right now, for me, it is a very successful, seems to, uh, seems to be a tool that's very successful in helping individuals to have better interactions about what the software is going to do. Cool. So maybe it'd be helpful to kind of talk about an example of <laughs> how you would do a BDD. <laughs> so if you were, you know, starting on a new project or something, what does it mean to, to implement that first feature or discover that first feature using BDD? Like what does that process actually look like and mean? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is figuring out what the first feature is, is outside of the scope of BDD. Right, I should say that for stars. So there are some excellent tools already out there, like um, they usually call something mapping. Um, story mapping is a is a really good tool for that. You know, where you can just kind of lay out the whole workflow that a user would want to go through and try and figure out what are some low fidelity ways of starting to help them achieve the the their tasks that they're trying to achieve. Um, impact mapping, which Goiko Adzic wrote a great book about, really easy technique to pick up really simple again that's a good way of kind of fo focusing you in on a goal and helping you figure out what's the first thing to do um so yeah those are some tools that you can do to try and figure out where to start 
once you've figured out where to start, <laughs> I'm going to say another mapping now, but the, the technique that uh, we, we developed um, really from just doing so many training courses with people about how to, to use examples to um, clarify the, the acceptance criteria the, and, and derive acceptance tests for a story. Because I used to sit and do this back at, in like, when is it, 2007 when I, when I worked at Songkick. Um, I used to sit and have a conversation with the, the designer and the product owner about the next feature we were going to build. And we just sit down with a bunch of index cards. And every time they kind of said something that seemed important, we'd, we'd write it down on a card. And uh, somehow we'd take those cards away. And then we'd go off and turn those cards into a Gherkin feature file. So that's the thing that is uh, fed into Cucumber to run as tests, as acceptance tests. But it's also can be read by anybody on the, on the team. And the process of turning that conversation into the, into the, the feature file, the, the specification, the executable specification, was a process that I learned how to do. I, I became like, what do they call it? Um, I had unconscious competence. So I knew how to do it, but I didn't know how to explain how to do it to somebody else. And over probably about three years of trying to teach it to people, we developed this technique, which we call example mapping. And there's a really good post about example mapping on the Cucumber blog. You can just look it up. And essentially what we'll do is we'll take your story, you know, say you're the product owner for the story and you probably have a few uh, acceptance criteria, a few kind of rules about what you what you think that the, the system should do um, for that story to be done. And what we'll immediately start doing is talking about some examples. So it'd be good if we had a real example here, wouldn't it? Are you building anything at the moment? Uh, I am actually working on a little kind of demo project for a, a training thing I'm working on where uh, it's yeah. like a it's like a, a concert listing and sales platform to allow like local concert promoters to sell tickets to like small local concerts where people can go visit an event page and buy tickets to a concert. Um, so maybe that would be an interesting uh, domain. So supposing we were... Yeah, so supposing we were building like the first iteration of that event page and there might be some rules about what should appear on the event page for a venue depending on what you already know about the venue. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Tell me some of those rules. Um, okay, so if you're on a page to see a specific event, uh, so what do you mean by rules, I guess? like, Well... Well, what, tell me what you, what you should see on that event page. So the goal, what the, the primary goal is to allow someone to see this page and kind of find out, you know, information about the event, like clarify, well, who's even playing? Uh, what date and time is the event happening? You know, where is it happening? Uh, how much do tickets cost? And allow me to, you know, purchase a number of tickets, you know, from one up to whatever limit maybe the uh, promoter has set to prevent scalpers from buying all the tickets to all the event you know what I mean? As well as maybe um, down the road, maybe you want to see some information about like how many tickets are left. So you have an idea of how urgent it is to buy tickets or or things like that. So fairly simple, but uh, hopefully some interesting things in there maybe that we can talk about. Well, so where do you think the the interesting bits are? Where is the where is the risk or the, the complexity around that? What do you what do you mean exactly? Like, well, which which bit do you, do you if you think about coding it up? Which bit do you think is the most kind of hairy that you're not quite sure how you're going to do it or what what exactly it's going to have to do? Is it say around deciding to how many how many remaining tickets to display? Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. Like, there's some. It depends. How, I think it's going to be fairly simple. Um, 
But in a more complex system, you might have to account for things like, well, is someone viewing this page and maybe has tickets that are being held for the next 10 minutes or something while they finish the purchase? Oh, perfect. Things like that. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, so that's a, that's a great example. Um, so supposing we were doing the story about you've, you've already built the event page. Um, and now we want to do a story where we're going to add a thing which displays, um, how many tickets remain. And you might say to me that the rule is, well, it should show, uh, it should show how many tickets are available for purchase. And then I would say to you, well, what about the example where somebody has just uh, put 10 tickets in their basket? There were 15 tickets left. Somebody's just put 10 tickets in their basket, but we haven't got their credit card details left. And then somebody else comes along and views that page. How many tickets should we say are available for purchase? Yeah, I think I would say five. So now we have a, so great. So you've just made a decision there. And the rule is that the number of remaining tickets is, does not include any tickets that are, uh, in somebody's basket, we assume that they're they're going to get purchased, and we only show the number of tickets that that have not been put into anybody's basket. So we've made a rule. You've just made a decision sure. there. Great product owner, well done for making a decision. Um, and what we find is that these conversations where we work, we we go back and forth between a concrete example, like I just said with the with the two people and the fifteen tickets and and so on, um, a concrete example, and then a rule. And we go back and forth between these two things to try and make sure that we really understood and explored all of the rules. Because generally, in a reasonably complex business domain, what happens is the rules look fine. But actually, when we start to dig into them with specific examples around edge cases, we realize that we, we realize that there are gaps in the mm-hmm. rules, right? There are some bits that we didn't think about, some bits missing. And by talking about them beforehand, before we sit down and write the code, you know, we catch those bits, basically defects um, before they even get written into the system. Yeah. And actually, this ends up becoming a really great way for testers. If you are a professional tester, if you have professional testers on your team, um, a really, really good way for testers to spend their time is actually testing the the idea, the the requirement, the understanding before any code gets written. Um, it's a much cheaper way of fixing defects when they're still just just an, an idea. And then the developers can uh, codify the decisions that get made during that conversation as acceptance tests or, or decide that they're going to just write them as unit tests. But, you know, then all of the code is going to get written out, driven out based on those tests that have been decided on. And there's a lot less for the testers to have to find later on or the testers get to find much more interesting defects yeah. later on yeah so i guess to me it sounds like the secret sauce with bdd that you know really is the part that's supposed to be kind of emphasized is the example stuff right it's not about well it's not that it's not about anything in particular but if someone is trying to get like a really good understanding of you know what bdd is supposed to be what they should be focusing on is this idea of examples and to me it feels like the goal is to kind of fill this hole where you're trying to gather requirements on something and someone explains it to you and you think you understand and everyone thinks they all agree but then someone goes and implements it and because of some assumptions that they made or whatever they end up doing something that they were so confident in was going to be totally right that the stakeholders now say is incorrect but if you had had concrete examples put in place it's very hard for two people to interpret an example in a different way yeah that's the that's the beauty of it and by uh making the effort 
upfront to try and write those examples down. Actually, even if you didn't end up automating them, um, the automation is really something more that helps keep the the development work uh, from kind of falling off the rails either during the, the development of the story or, or, or later on, right? Um, so, But even if you chose not to do the automation, just that conversation to figure out around those concrete examples, what should it do? Um, it just flushes out a huge amount of those those uncertainties and assumptions that people will otherwise make. So would you say like the, the automated testing side of like BDD is almost just like a pleasant side effect of the process more than like a explicit goal? Or is that taking it maybe a little bit too extreme? I think I think it's take it's I probably have said something like that in the past. I think it is taking it a little bit too extreme. I think you know in in the end for a healthy code base you need both, right? You need to do your best to try and understand the ins and outs of what it is you're going to build before you build it. But when you build it, um I still think that test driven development, you know, starting with a failing test and using that to push you to to write code is is the right way to to develop code. It's the best way I found to to write code at a sustainable pace. Yeah. So I think ultimately you need both. And really the thing is, the fact that you know that Cucumber is going to have to run this 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 set of examples, that's the driver that forces you to really figure out what it is that you, you want it to do. Like if you're going to have to explain to a computer what you want the system to be to look like, how you want it to behave when it's working, you have to really think that through. So Cucumber is just like this kind of dumb facilitator that sits there going, okay, well, you tell me, what what do you want it to do? And in doing that, in asking you that question, it's forcing you as a team to think through, okay, what do we really want it to do? So if you aren't playing the game all the way and you know that you aren't actually going to give it to Cucumber to run it, I think it it loses some of that, that vitality. Yeah. So... I think um, my kind of impression is that Cucumber initially seemed to gain a lot of adoption as more of like a UI and like acceptance testing tool. But I know that's not really how you guys think about Cucumber. So what do you think the mistake is there and how do you guys see it differently than maybe some other people have used it in the past? Right, yeah. Well, so one thing to say is that there's a distinction, at least in my mind and several other practitioners I know, between acceptance tests and UI tests. An acceptance test is simply uh, a test that you could show to a a non-technical person and say, is this right? Like, if I can make it do this, is the software acceptable to you? Now, there are many cases where that person is only gonna trust you that you really have made it work if they can see that when you run that automated test, some GUI flashes up and some buttons get punched and some screens whiz around, right? There, there are a lot of situations where it's necessary for the acceptance test to also be UI tests in order to gain that trust. However, there is no reason why those two things have to be the same thing. And in um, mature teams, it's often the case that an acceptance test actually is executed, is automated against some lower level part of the system. And an analogy that I might use is, is sometimes is say, um, if you think about a car, right, the whole of a, the whole of an automate automobile, but actually the the behaviour that you're interested in specifying and testing is say the way that the radio in the, on the stereo of the car, the way it tunes itself, right, it's got an auto tune function. So you might be describing the way that you want the auto tune to behave, um, and writing writing tests that that 
that, that, that test that behavior of the of the automobile in general. But really, it's probably not necessary for you to like start the car, um, get it out onto the freeway, take it up to 80 miles an hour, then turn on the stereo, then test the tuner, right? You can test the behavior of the tuner kind of in isolation and you can still be confident that when you use that stereo in a car that's driving at 80 miles an hour, it's still going to work, Yeah. right? So there are, there are like tactical decisions that you can take about prag- what are pragmatic ways to actually execute a test that guarantees this behavior that can save you a lot of pain in test maintenance in the long run because anybody who's had to maintain a large suite of UI-dependent automated tests knows there's a lot of maintenance pain that goes along with those. So, so that's one thing. Um, an acceptance test doesn't always have to be a UI test. And you can kind of, if you can decouple those things in your mind um, and you can start thinking about what's a what's a faster way to, or a, a more flexible way or a more, um, a, where, where can I connect the pros of this test closer to where the logic is actually implemented? And uh, so to speak about that a little bit more, well, we, we use Cucumber, obviously. Um, we are building a, commercial platform for teams that that use gherkin and cucumber called cucumber pro and um there are cucumber tests for that for that product um in fact we use them you know day to day to drive out the development of each story most of those tests most of the time don't run through a browser it's a browser-based app it's actually um like a single page app a react js app but most of the tests for that, that when we run when we run Cucumber, most of the test runs run against the lower layer. So we have the ability within the test suite to swap which level within the the, uh, the stack Cucumber connects in at. So it will either drive the UI if we want to have a really kind of thorough but slow test run, but it will also plug in at a lower layer to drive just the domain model and carry out the same actions. And the, the, the interesting thing about that is that when you think about could I use this same scenario to drive the software at a lower layer? It forces you to use a language in the scenario that is kind of independent of the interactions you'd have in the UI. So it's more about what am I trying to do rather than how do I do it? You know, so so instead of saying, uh, given I visit the homepage and I click login and I fill in Matt and I fill in password and I press login, it would say, given I am authenticated as Matt. Yeah. Right. And now, now we have a more terse scenario, which is easier to read and therefore easier for you to get feedback from a non-technical person because they're not going to be bored reading all of this this long-winded scenario. But also we've we've discovered this word called authenticated, which we didn't actually have to use before because we were just talking about all of the the steps yeah and now we've had to we've squished it up and we've had to come up with a term so now we have some domain terminology and of course that step given i'm authenticated as matt that could be used um that exact same step could work whether we're using a a browser-based version of our test run or if we were say hitting the web service right to to figure out um whether the behavior still works the same when exposed through a web service or or even just just straight api calls to the to the back end layer. So um, does that does that help to answer the question you were you, Yeah, you yeah, were definitely. One of the parts that I think is interesting there, you know, you're talking about having acceptance tests that work 
you know, with your domain model instead of through kind of like the user facing interface, when you are automating your acceptance tests in that way, do you still have an approach that you're taking for like test driving out the user interface or do you sometimes Mm. not even deal with that because you don't see it as high risk or I'd just be interested in hearing more about what your thoughts are around, you know, that part of testing. So the definitely like the order that we'll do things in is we'll build the the domain version first. So because uh, that's quick, the tests run quicker, get quicker feedback, um, and we and it's usually the hard bit. Like that's where the logic is. So that's once that's done, then what we're doing is we're just presenting that to the user through through UI. Um, we will usually then add a second version of the test that uh, steps back and runs through the UI. Unless it is, like you say, is really low risk, then we might test it by hand. Or alternatively, if we know that we can easily drive out the changes needed to the UI through smaller unit tests for the for the bits of the UI, then we might do it like that. I think the, the thing to be always conscious of is that model of the, the testing pyramid where, and I don't think pyramid is really the right shape. Like when I look at numbers from code bases that, I'm happy with that. I've I've built. I know I've built test first and in this BDD style, or, or with teams that, that have worked that way. The the proportion of shallow tests that you'd have at the bottom of the pyramid to to deep tests that would be at the top of the pyramid does not give would not give kind of a diagonal shape to the side of the pyramid. Right? It, it's like very very flat sided. There are a lot more shallow tests than there are deep tests. It's really hard to describe this over. over yeah, I know. Over, I know what you mean uh, over voice only. Um, so I hope it's making sense to people. But um, I think bearing in mind that idea of a test pyramid all the time. So be thinking about what's the shallowest level that I could test this at. That's that's kind of the approach that we're always taking. So I guess something that I think is interesting about that is it sounds like. Uh, let me think of the best way to say this. When you're talking about like the testing pyramid stuff, a lot of people think of that as being like acceptance tests at the top and then unit tests at the mm. bottom. But you're sort of decoupling the idea of acceptance tests from that completely. Like it's almost like the top is system tests, like end-to-end tests, and the bottom is unit tests. But a test that could be classified as an acceptance test could almost live anywhere in that stack, depending on how you have decided to write the test. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of think about it that the the ones at the top of the pyramid are slow and the ones at the bottom of the pyramid are slow and clumsy, but but thorough. You know, if, if, if like, like uh, somebody recently, I forget who it was, was saying like, you want to have one test at the top of your pyramid, right? Which just goes through your entire system and tries to do like everything important that a user would try and do. Yeah. And maybe it takes 20 minutes to run, but you only need to run it, you know, once a day. Maybe that's the one right at the very top of your pyramid. So the ones at the top of the pyramid are really slow and and a bit clumsy, but they are thorough. If you if that test is passing, you can be pretty happy that your system is really good. Um, lower down the pyramid, they're fast, yeah, but they give you more limited feedback, and that's really the only way I think about that. And I think that the yes, the the um, sometimes I've tried to use the analogy, and, and Seb wrote a good post about um, thinking about it not as so much as a pyramid, but as an iceberg, right? So like, take the pyramid and sort of imagine um, imagine that the the world where the where the testing pyramid lives starts to become flooded with water, right? So that um, and only and the non-technical people, the, the business people, can only read the test. They can only see the tests that are above the waterline, right? 
So, so typically in, in that typical idea where um, acceptance tests are UI tests, then the, the waterline is going to be pretty much at that level in the pyramid where the UI tests start, right? And only the UI tests are going to be facing above the waterline. But imagine now that you can actually kind of float the pyramid and it starts to swivel a little bit in the water so that some of those fast tests at the bottom of the pyramid are actually poking up above the waterline. Yeah. And there's still a huge amount of other tests that are underneath the waterline that the non-tech people never get to see. Um, but they know that they must be there because every time the, the team changed the software, like they asked them to, it keeps working, mm -hmm. right? This is what the, the hidden bit of the iceberg that sits under the waterline is there for. And that's how eventually people will get to know that it's there is that you don't break the system. It keeps working all the time. But you keep a, a layer of tests above the waterline which yeah, could some tests, some fast tests, some slow tests, but there's a there's a layer of tests above the waterline so that you you gain that trust and you get that um, back and forth about is this what we really want to make it do? Yeah, makes sense. Just wanted to take a minute to thank Hired for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want, or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. So the goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. For me, I always am trying to fight this kind of battle of trying to figure out like what is the job of a system level test versus what is the job of a unit test in terms of, you know, if your system tests are passing, should that give you all the confidence you need to deploy the application, even if you had to throw away everything underneath it? And I find that when I start thinking that way, it feels hard to keep that number of system tests low. Yeah. So... What are your opinions on that? Do you think that that is not a useful way to think about it? Um, do you think that people should be maybe, you know, I guess the other thing you can do is write UI tests that maybe don't have the same level of detail necessarily. Maybe they're just kind of there to make sure things don't like blow up, but maybe they don't 
you know, specify some of the specific details where things might necessarily, you know, could possibly be incorrect that you need the unit level test to verify. It's kind of a vague question, yeah. but hopefully it makes sense. Oh, I, mean, I know where you're going yeah. with it. I know where you're going. I'm just making some notes so I don't end up going off on one and <laughs> uh, forgetting where I started. Um, well, have you ever seen JB Rainsberger talk about integration tests are a scam? Yeah, I actually had him on the podcast once too. Right. Um, so JB loves to talk about that subject and... Uh, I think he does it very well in that talk. And it's like one thing to, to be bearing in mind there is that the bigger piece of system that you are integrating and trying to test as a black box, the the exponentially greater number of tests that you will need in order to thoroughly test it, right? The more you combine together units and try and test all of the code paths through all of the units in combination, exponentially, the more examples you will need to thoroughly cover them all. Yeah. And this is why we see, you know, where people are trying to use, say, Cucumber with scenario outlines through a UI to retrofit tests, you know, the sprint after the developers have written all the code, we just see these scenario outlines with just, you know, tens, hundreds even sometimes of examples in them because we're just basically trying to kind of pepper test cases at the system to see if any of them will, will get through, you know, see if any of them can find a bug. And what I propose is, uh, is much healthier is if you can try to allocate the the tests to the part of the system where you know the behavior being described in that example, in that test, is, is implemented, the, the part of the system that you know is responsible for that behavior. And so you talk about system-level tests, right, um, versus unit tests. And he talked about if I wanted to throw away that, that system and rewrite it, you know, you'd want to have that complete set of tests. I, th I think that's right. And I think that if... If there, you believe that there is a risk that you might want to throw away all of those internals of that system and rewrite it, then it's a good idea to try and write that exhaustive set of examples around the outside of that black box. However, if you identify within that black box that there is some piece of responsibility in there that you would keep, even if you threw away the rest of it, then push the test for that piece down to that, that smaller black box, right? And then you can kind of unplug that and gradually start to think about doing the same with the other pieces of the of the black box until you haven't got one big black box with thousands of tests. You've now got four or five black boxes with hundreds of tests, yeah. right? Or maybe even less. And it is about it's about thinking about the stability of your architecture, I think, and where knowing where the responsibility for, for behavior is going to live. And if you don't know yet, then it's important to keep the tests around the outside of roughly where you think it's going to go and letting that emerge and evolve and then solidifying it as you, as you get a better understanding and more confidence. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear someone else say that because it's a topic that i kind of been thinking about a lot lately, which is kind of just like you have a lot more freedom to kind of refactor and kind of reorganize things, you know, the bigger that black box is and the higher up that, that test is. Yeah. But that comes with a lot of its own costs. But if you start moving those tests down closer, you're sort of like solidifying your design a little bit and saying that, like, I'm yeah. happy with how this is laid out. And if you ever want to change that and you don't have that system test anymore, then you're going to need to implement another higher level test to give you that kind of flexibility to yeah. refactor underneath it. But so so what does the workflow look like um, for you with that? One thing that I've tried in the past that has worked out pretty OK is to kind of write uh, more integration -y system level tests drive out kind of the underlying stuff with unit tests to kind of get that system level test passing and then just kind of examine the state of the test suite after the fact and see like 
is there any way I can collapse down some of these system yeah. or integration level tests or delete some of them or, you know, just kind of take stock of what's there and figure out how can I make this faster or, um, you know. That's the hard bit though, isn't it? Like knowing what's safe to delete is what's really hard and letting go of tests that you invested in writing. I think that's the really hard bit. That's t the thing that uh, I struggle with and see, I see other teams struggle with. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not going to start advocating that you that you design up front, but I think it's helpful to always be thinking about where do I want to put this responsibility? So when you do take, you know, you start out with your, your broader test that's saying, okay, this, this black box needs to do some th this particular thing. And then when you're writing the implementation, j just try and think about, well, can I commit yet? Can I commit to, to a design or at least an interface where something is going to play this role and have this responsibility, in which case I don't need a, a high level test that, that proves that because I can, I can be confident that, that that's a commitment I want to keep. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that's just kind of a topic that I think would be interesting to, I'm sure like a, most experienced testers kind of know it intrinsically, but it's, I think a thing that people who just getting started, uh, don't hear enough about, which is, you know, the whole idea that your test suite isn't necessarily permanent. Like every test you write doesn't mm -hmm. have to live there forever. Once the implementation is there, like you can go back and collapse tests down or change tests to, to cover less responsibility. Now that you've got unit test coverage for other things, it's kind of like a back and forth thing. And I think people kind of see it as like a unidirectional thing. A lot of time where you write the tests, write yeah. the implementation, write more tests, write more implementation. Yeah. Yeah, and you can never and you can never go back. You can never remove any. I, I think there's some great. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had Mike Feathers on the pod. I have actually. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, he he speaks about this a lot, and there's a great talk from him called the deep synergy between testability and good design, which speaks a lot about this same idea that the relationship between. I can't emphasize it enough, really, how much, for me anyway, in my practice, testing is is a is about helping me to to get good structure good architectural structure in the code it's forcing me to think about questions about where do i want this responsibility to lie um what is the scope of the responsibility here how much does it need to do right now and the pain that i feel in trying to test bits of the system are invariably signals about problems with the design a really common thing that people will complain about when they're trying to do TDD is like, I've I've mocked out this third party API that I'm using and then they changed it and now all my mocks are broken or even like I mocked out this other, I mocked out some calls between one part of the system and another part of the system, which, um, you know, cause I was trying to unit test this one part in isolation. And then we updated the the API between two bits of the system and now all my, my mocks broke and I have to go up and go in and change my mocks well that's not a problem with mock objects that's a problem with the interface that you were mocking that it was unstable and probably too broad and complex yeah and actually um that's a signal for you that you had some coupling between two parts of the system that uh you needed to you probably still need to think about how you can make that coupling lighter and uh, and and more robust to to changes in the future so that it isn't a big overhead to change your tests and uh, therefore it will also won't be a big overhead to make changes to the code. And things like that are, are kind of mistakes that beginners will make and start to kind of point them to their finger at the tool where 
actually um if you take a step back you can you can see that it's giving you feedback and i i find that feedback invaluable yeah yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense right like if the interface is changing then of course your mock expectations and stuff are going to fail and that just means that maybe mocks weren't the right tool at that point in kind of the design process for the application and i, I mean that whole topic is one of those things to me where people are always asking like you know is there a right or a wrong way to do any given thing? And it's almost like you can never know until the future when you've been able to see, like, did the mock expectations I wrote survive the changes that happened over yeah. the next six months? And it's it's one of those things that you only really get better at with experience. And you're really just making, like, you know, an educated guess about how, you know, about what you think is the most stable thing to assert against at that point in time, right? Have you have you had Steve Freeman and Nat Price? No, on? I would like to get them on sometime, though. Yeah, so so I mean, I know like that they would be really good because um, on this subject about mocking, like the way they, as as at least my understanding, um, I've spoken them to them a lot of times about it. That the way they design mock objects in the first place, the idea of them is is a design tool to be used during TDD when you have yet to implement mm -hmm. a collaborator object. So I'm building object A. I know it needs to collab collaborate with something that can provide some information to me or will allow me to to ask it to do other things but i don't want to get distracted by building that thing yet so i'm going to use a mock object to simulate what it would look like to build a sketch of it yeah and that's all they're for they're for their design tool to help you to sketch out the, the the way you would like an api to be and so many times people will use mocks to help them to introduce testing into a code base where there are already dependencies and they'll use a mock mock object to try and describe the behavior of an existing yeah. API. Mm -hmm. And if you're using it as a design tool, as soon as it starts to get, you know, complicated to write the mock, you'll be like, okay, it looks to me like we've got a complicated API here. How can we make it simpler? But if you've already got an API that you can't, can't necessarily change right away, you'll just go in and write the, you know, 30 lines of, sure. of mocking yeah, code, yeah. Um, n not even realizing maybe the, the pain that it's telling you about. So how do you reconcile, I guess, like the, the mocks as a design tool thing against like the idea of outside in TDD and starting with, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of outside in TDD, but if you just, sorry, if you think about it as like starting with a bigger black box, I guess, then I find it hard to do that mocks as a design tool thing. Is that like something you've thought much about or what mistake are people making there? I'm not with you. So like, say you're starting to, uh, you know, you're, you're writing an outside in kind of system level test for a feature and you're yeah. kind of describing like what the acceptance criteria should be. How do mocks kind of fit in there? If you're just trying to describe how the system is ultimately going to work and you need to actually implement it to get that ex outside in acceptance test, actually passing and actually doing what the system needs to do at the end of the day to kind of meet that acceptance criteria where a mock yeah. isn't going so to I don't do think, it. You know what I mean? Like it needs to be yeah. a real thing. Yeah. So I, I think that's not the time to use a mock object. I think though that uh, it may be that when you start to implement the pieces of this, of the black inside the black box to deliver the behavior that you've described in the acceptance test, you might uh, realize that, you know, you want to build, one piece at a time and that thing is the the first piece that you're building is going to need some other piece but you don't want to get distracted by building that you know say yeah. um i know that i'm going to need to be able to check into a into a system to find out whether the the user that i've got 
um, has a, a valid paid up account, right? I don't want to go off and build my accounts system service right now. I'm just going to imagine that I have it and then define an interface for it where I can, you know, pass it an email address and it'll pass me back a number of days until the next bill or whatever. And um, and I just use a mock object to simulate it right now so that I can focus on building the behavior that I need right now. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes those fakes, those testables will be things that I'll use in a in an acceptance test because they are, I'm actually test doubling um, a system, a service, which is outside of the scope of my team, right? I'm building uh, the, the uh, TV player app for a TV station and my team build the, the app that renders in a browser or a, or a phone. Um, but we don't build the XML service that tells you what, what programs are on today, what shows are on today. We get that from another team. And I'm not going to go and make queries to that service during my test run because their their test service might not be up, or um, you know, th thousand reasons. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to fake it. So in those cases, I'll even use a fake in, in an acceptance test in a in a full stack test. Yeah, and you would kind of define that, I guess, as part of a step definition or something, right? It would reach for a fake instead of yeah. yeah. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Andrew, the co-founder of Clubhouse, which is an agile project management tool, had to say about Rollbar and how they use it at their company. What Rollbar let us do is is to very quickly react uh, when when a bug actually happens and keep bugs from becoming huge issues for us as a as a company. Let's say I'm looking at a specific bug, I can see the exact stack trace for that bug because we have source maps enabled. We can see exactly what line caused the issue, not just you know line six thousand. On top of that, we can see who it's affected, how often it's happened over the last sixty days, which is great. Uh, and we can also, with any alert, we can pass in basically a list of interactions that led up to that point in time. User clicked on story, open story, updated the owner, and then if that was the last thing in the, in the interaction, then we know it's possible that it was related to that. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So I guess that kind of brings me on to a topic that I kind of like to ask everyone that I bring on to talk about testing, which is just kind of surrounding your testing strategies when it comes to dealing with external services. Uh, so an example for an application I worked on that um, I always like to get people's opinions on is I was working on this application where one of the things that it needed to do was based on some action that the user took, it needed to add a user to an organization on GitHub. Um, so it's something that's sort of hard to stub because like the, the thing that you actually want to prove is that that user is now a member of that organization, you know, on this external service and the external service doesn't provide me any sort of sandbox or test environment to actually integration test against. So in a situation like that, what is your strategy for getting as much coverage as you can and what are you okay to not have coverage for and how do you verify that things work that you can't test in an automated way yeah so first of all nightmare right <laughs> horrible because what you ideally want is that every line of code that runs there's a way for you to repeatedly and idempotently test it and something like adding a user to an organization on github as far as well you could get a license for GitHub Enterprise. Maybe they give 
like free <laughs> test licenses and you could try running your, your code against that. So, you know, I mean, that, that would be my first answer is, is fight as hard as you can to get the environment that you would like to have, right? Don't just accept it because your boss says, oh, the uh, license for Oracle is too expensive. You can't have a copy of Oracle on your laptop. You have to all use one shared environment between 30 of sure. you, you know, try and figure out a workaround. So that would be one thing. Um, but then the other thing is to try and move the layers in your system to minimize the amount of code not covered, right? So this comes to, so actually something that I haven't mentioned yet in this conversation, but it's this idea of a, a hexagonal or ports and adapters architecture so that you would have an interface where you define, okay, this is the GitHub service or even the GitHub uh, organization service. And I can pass that service a username and uh, it will re respond to me with either a void or an exception if if it failed to add that username to the organization, right? So sorry, so I pass it in name of an organization and a, and a username and it'll either carry on void if that all succeeded or it will throw an exception if it didn't, right? So that's my like contract with this yeah. with this thing. And now... I can build a testable that I can use day to day when I'm testing all of the rest of the system. I mean, maybe the, maybe the rest of the system didn't hardly do anything, but I, I imagine it maybe has a UI yeah, at least yeah. that you want to yep. make sure you can render and all of that. So I would have this interface defined and I can have one implementation of that interface, which will simply go, I don't know, like maybe, maybe if it's for testing, maybe you have one special user called, you know, does not exist. And whenever you try and... Um, create that user called doesn't doesn't exist it throws the uh, user not found exception same one as github would so that you can start to simulate that that behavior from it in your tests and you can tdd that testable so you can define what are the minimum expectations i have of this testable in order to get it to do what i want it to do for my testing purposes and you have a, you've defined a contract now of what you what behavior you expect across that interface and you can, if you write those tests cleverly, um, you can then run exactly those same contract tests on your then concrete implementation of your GitHub user adding service, which you probably run very infrequently by hand or against a uh, an instance of uh, GitHub Enterprise. And you know, as soon as you've you've run the test, you can go in and manually delete the yeah. <laughs> delete the user, or maybe the test can go and do that, but trying to push away the code that you know you can't run every day as part of your test run as part of every check-in push that away into a little corner somewhere use a testable 90 percent of the time and then only test that uh that integrated code test it genuinely test it in integration but only test that on its own yeah um so that you and only as often as up. github yeah. tell you that they've changed their api yeah yeah and i think that's kind of what I landed on. And it's good to hear other people talk about it because I think it's a very pragmatic approach, right? You're basically saying like stuff that code somewhere and make it do the absolute bare minimum it needs to do to do that one specific piece that can't be tested and yeah. make sure it doesn't do anything that you could have put on the other side that could have been tested. Yeah. And I just accept yeah. that there's risk there and try to mitigate it through, 
you know, other reasonable kind of practical means, like you're saying, like being able to test it manually when you need to test it manually because you don't have an unlimited bucket of users to add to an unlimited bu- bucket of organizations or whatever. Um, yeah, no, that, that's good to hear. And I think that is uh, the way that, you know, I ended up doing it. And um, I think it's useful for people to hear about situations like that because a lot of the time people feel like they don't know what they're doing or they can't or they they're just not good enough to tdd or whatever because someone would know how to do that but they don't know how to do that and it's interesting to talk to people who are very experienced about things like that to try and get that information out into the world about you know situations like that so people can understand that it's not a silver bullet thing necessarily and that it has tons and tons of advantages and you use it as much as you can but yeah there's some situations where it just isn't going to work and you're not a horrible programmer because you couldn't figure it out (laughs) yeah it's, it's really i'm glad you've mentioned that i mean this is the thing it's hard it's hard to do and it takes a lot of practice and and kind of discipline i think um i remember when i decided to switch to coding test first I'd just been leading a team through a two-year project, like a team of 12 people, kind of, I don't know, like, I can't remember what the budget was for the project. It was a big budget project, two-year project. And we were, like, using all the agile practices. This is back in 2005. Using all the agile practices for project management, trying to do TDD as much as possible, but not really honestly managing to do it a lot of the time. And I recognize that if we had have had the discipline to have done TDD all the time and had have known how to do it, that project would have gone better. And I just made a quiet vow to myself when I took my next contract, so I was a contractor at the time, that I was just not going to write another line of code without a test that was going to force me to do that and see how long I could get away with this for, basically. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got away with it for, for a good year before I started to see that there were places, there were times when I could let myself off the hook and I didn't necessarily need to do it. And there were some days in that year where I spent like, I'd spend literally the whole day trying to work out how to test like a three line if statement because this this framework that we were using sometimes made it really difficult. And I just made, because I'd made this little quiet promise to myself, I was just kind of belligerent about it and um, somehow I managed to get away with it. But it is it is really, really hard. And I think the thing that I realized as well is that, Many people who are trying to learn these practices are also doing it in really gnarly old horrible code bases sure. that were never designed with testability in mind. And actually that's that's the place I love to try and do this stuff, right? Because it's the place where I can get the biggest challenge. Um, but that's it's the worst possible environment to try and practice and learn um, TDD. And it's why it's really good if you are in a team where you want to start to learn these habits and it is a habit is like get together at lunch times and do a little coding dojo on some easy clean new code base with it with a little 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 problem rather than trying to do you know and then see if you can build up your muscles so that you can go back and do it on the, the real stuff at work because yeah. it's really hard yeah, yeah. for sure and it takes years Awesome. Uh, one other topic I'd like to get into a little bit before we get going, which is something that's been interesting me a little bit lately, is what sort of benefits and stuff do you see in using a tool like Cucumber if you're just a solo developer working on your own project idea and you don't really have the collaboration challenge to solve necessarily? Do you still see yeah. any strong benefits there? And what are some of those benefits? Well, so I personally have been in that situation and for me, it's still about stepping out of the, the code and the sort of solution space 
and thinking about the putting my my head in the problem space and thinking about what am I what am I setting out to do and what does a user how does a user think about this and what's the goal here and I know several other people who have t- told me that th- the same thing that just even if you're working on a solo project is still helpful to just get your head into that different space and just the fact that when you write a a feature file for cucumber it's it's plain plain language plain english or whatever your language is um there's there isn't there aren't any curly braces there's no end statements and so it just helps you to think clearly about where you're headed and why you're headed there and also then because i mean you can still write those acceptance tests those those big system test uh those things that that can you know take many days to to get passing you can you can implement those using other tools right you can use a, a unit testing tool to to write those tests just fine and i think lots of people do that and they and they do just fine at doing that and i think you know you need to use the 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 thing that works for you and seems to fit fit for you but personally um i found it helpful to just sit down and think think about it like that unencumbered by by code yeah one kind of benefit that I've kind of been kind of seduced by with it so far that I'd like to get your opinion on is to me what seems really interesting is the idea of kind of being able to decouple the examples from what those examples mean in code in the sense that I might have a, a t- situation where I'm testing something that um, my original step definitions visit a page, fill in a form and click a button. But then I decide for whatever reason that, you know, this app is going to use some fancier Ajax interactions there or something. And I'm no longer that concerned about simulating the actual UI stuff. And I'm Mm. instead content to just like make an HTTP request to the endpoint that the JavaScript would hit or whatever. Um, Without that sort of translation layer, I sort of feel like I have to throw away that initial test to rewrite it now in this style. Whereas using a tool like Cucumber, I feel like I only have to write this step in between and I still have the actual example kind of there as a reference point, and I don't have to kind of start again. And for some reason, it, it makes me feel like, I don't know, I just kind of really like the idea of having these examples that like can live on their own that aren't necessarily coupled to what those examples mean and giving me the freedom to kind of iterate on what those might mean as my application go, grows and changes, even if like yeah. the example and the behavior that I want to verify can still be described the same way that it was originally. Um, is that a benefit that that's other a, people talk about a lot? That's well, so you, that's, it's beautiful because you're using it right. So you're enjoying that benefit because you're writing your examples at that level where they will remain true, even if you change the underlying implementation and the, the way that the user, the method that the user has to go through to achieve the same goal, right? The mistake that a lot of people will make is that they will actually put in their gherkin, you know, click this, fill in this, press this, and then they're coupled and they don't have that extra level of flexibility. And then they start whining about, well, why didn't I just write, you know, browser dot click in a in a J unit test? And and you know they're right, actually, they they should have. Yeah, because because I've seen a lot of they they didn't get anything. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about like moving from Cucumber to just using like Capybara with RSpec, for example. Mm -hmm. And based on kind of the benefits that I've seen from working with those tools, I don't understand how you could make that switch. You know what I mean? Unless you're doing it incorrectly, like you're saying, which is what I think. Well, I still think, yeah, 
I think a lot of people did. So there's a, there's a, there's a whole sort of baggage in the Rails community from this plugin that we wrote a long time ago for, for Rails, where we provided a bunch of stock step definitions that encouraged people to write these very imperative style scenarios that were full of clicks and presses and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great blog post by Aslak called, uh, what's it about the training wheels? What's it called? Why the training wheels came off or something like that. Um, which is we, we when when we uh, deleted that repo and um, <laughs> deleted all those steps from from the project because it was just they were just encouraging people to do, to kind of do it wrong and I think that a lot of early Rails Cucumber practitioners kind of they thought that was it that was how you were supposed to use Cucumber and therefore thought it was a bit rubbish and that this was a better alternative and and I you know if that's the extent to which you were going to use Cucumber I think you'd be right. So the way that you're using it, with a, uh, a more kind of abstract level of language in your in your examples, does give you that flexibility, and I think that is the power of it. I do also think that those examples, yeah, a they last longer, right? They can outlive your your particular today's implementation, but they are also easier to to read in the long run as well because they they're less detailed about the particular how of something, and they're much more about the what of what you want to do, which is a, a more kind of valuable artifact to have documented yeah. somewhere. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about before we start wrapping things up? No, I don't think so. It's been good. Yeah, awesome. So what is the best yeah. way, I guess, for people to kind of keep up with uh, what you guys are working on and kind of the BDD and Cucumber community? Is, uh, is there any resources or anything that you'd like to plug or point people to uh, to learn more about this stuff? Right, so um, we have a podcast, uh, which we do as well. Um, I think the way to follow that really is to follow our blog. So go to cucumber.io slash blog. Um, there's probably a mailing list sign up there as well. You'll get an email when we do new new podcasts. I think the podcast is on iTunes and SoundCloud. The thing I'd really like to encourage people to do actually is to get into the open source. So if you're using Cucumber... You're a programmer, probably, so uh, you can probably contribute. And there are flavors of Cucumber for all the different languages. So whatever your programming language is, um, you'll be able to make a contribution. And we are making a deliberate effort uh, at the moment to make the project easier for first-timers to to get involved in. We recognize that for too long, it's been a project that was just... You know, we shared the code that we'd written and anybody who uh, had enough kind of courage to get involved and make their way around the code base and figure it out um, would would do that. But we didn't really, we just hadn't ever made the time to make the effort to make it accessible to, to more people. And we that is not what we are about. Um, we want to be inclusive, but we just weren't giving a very good impression of ourselves in that way. So... Um, I just want to encourage anybody really who would like to get involved in open source um, and would like to give something back if you're using Cucumber and you find it valuable, um, come along. There's a Gitter channel, uh, which you should find if you look at any of the the GitHub pages for any of the Cucumber projects. Um, You can just come along in there and have a chat and um, we'll we'll help you to find some some place to get started. And of course, if you're not finding it easy um, to figure out where to get started, you should let us know because we'd really like to hear. Like we want it to be easy for people to get started and get involved as contributors to the project. So um, we'd love to hear 
why it's not easy if you're finding it not easy. Awesome. Um, I can also recommend, I've been working through the Cucumber book that you guys put out a couple years back. So that was my uh, kind of reading on this uh, last trip that I was just on. So I can definitely oh, recommend good. that uh, as well. Great, thank so, you. It's been And there's also Cucumber School, um, which is a video series that we made uh, about two years ago, sort of off, um, it's like the kind of next next uh, part of the story I like to think about it after the book um, and it's based on the training courses that we do in-house for people um, trying to kind of put some of those lessons into something that you know anybody can access it's only a couple of hundred dollars um, in fact I believe that we're going to start doing a campaign where if you don't think you can afford the couple of hundred dollars if you send us a real three-dimensional physical postcard in the mail will give you a license for free. I'm pretty sure that we're about to start doing that because um, we do sometimes get like uh, things from, you know, people in Brazil or other parts of the third world where they can't really afford the same prices. So, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, say, I heard, uh, I know Sandy Metz was doing that with uh, with her latest book too, which I thought was a really cool idea. So that, that's, I'm, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Sandy's and um, I'm going to unashamedly, unashamedly say that we just stole the idea from her. I hope she doesn't mind. <laughs> hope you don't mind, Sandy. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, what's the best way for people to kind of keep up with uh, you specifically? Twitter, I suppose. I mostly just grumble about um, politics on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that Twitter's probably the best way. Cool. I should think. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for being on the show, Matt. It was a pleasure to talk with you about some of this stuff, and I learned a lot, and I think the listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Thanks for having me. If uh, anyone is interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 51. And uh, if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful to help us uh, get in front of more people and to, you know, hear if we're doing a good job on here. And uh, thanks to Hired and Rollbar for sponsoring Full Stack Radio, as always. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.